Audrey Frank was sharing the gospel of Christ in a Muslim country, and she began to tell the story of how Jesus interacted with the woman who was caught in adultery. And in the middle of the story, her eyes filled with tears. She looked at me and she said, stop. This Muslim woman was so moved. She wanted to hear the story straight from the pages of scripture. And I ran and got it. I read it to her and I got to observe a soul being born into the kingdom of God because she identified with that woman. And the point at which she identified was, he did not shame her more. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and I'm on the road this week at the Crescent Project National Conference. We are having a great time looking at God's plan to reach Muslims, and uh, not only God's plan, but how we get to play a part in that plan and help out. Uh, So I encourage you to connect with the Crescent Project. They have been great hosts to me. And uh, we are going to talk today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Audrey Frank. Audrey has been a gospel worker in the Muslim world. We're not going to talk too specifically about where and when because there's some security issues there, which is not uncommon here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. She is also the author of a forthcoming book. It is called Covered Glory, The Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. And we're going to talk about what that means and how that changes our approach to sharing the gospel, how we can speak directly into that honor-shame culture. Audrey, welcome to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about what you mean by honor-shame culture and what that is and how it's different from our sort of American Western mindset of guilt and innocence. Missiologists have identified three general ways that man responded to sin in the Garden of Eden. And this work has been discussed at length by authors like Roland Mueller, Jason Georges. And those three responses basically were um, shame, fear, and guilt. And they became, in a general sense, building blocks for worldview. And those worldviews that emerged out of that were a shame-honor worldview, a guilt-innocence worldview, and a fear-power worldview. And missiologists have come to look at cultures across the world as fitting into, in a general sense, each of these worldviews. Now, every culture contains elements of all of them, but one tends to be predominant in any particular place. As we think about our American guilt-innocence mindset, what does that mean? Put that in, in layman's terms. Okay, so we look at the world through the lenses of right and wrong. You're guilty or you're innocent. It's right or it's wrong. It can be black or white. Things are very binary for us. And so how is that not the case in the Muslim world? How, how do they think about apparently not issues of right and wrong. What, what do they look at the world through? They look at the world through the lenses of honor and shame. So when they consider a behavior, they consider, will it preserve my position of honor 
in society or will it move me from a position of honor to a position of shame? This is paramount in their minds, not whether a behavior is inherently just or unjust. And I think of that, and, and we have heard stories here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio of one person in a Muslim family coming to Christ, and the rest of the family is very upset about that because of that issue of, oh, you have shamed our entire family. We don't think of that as being sort of that big a deal. That's huge in that culture. That's right, and that brings to mind the idea that in guilt-innocence cultures, we're, we're more individualistic in our thinking. So the rights of the individual triumph over the rights of a group you belong to. But in a Muslim culture, through the eyes of honor and shame, the group is more important than the individual. And so if you do something that sets you apart from the group, then you put yourself in a position of shame, and not only yourself, but the group to which you belong, be your family, your community, even your nation. And so one of the ways that we see that play out is a lot of times where persecution starts when a Muslim comes to be a follower of Christ is not from their government, it's from right at their own house. Right. right. And many governments in honor-shame cultures allow families to, to work with that problem of shame before they intervene, because that is the system. Now, how does this play out in the differences between men and women in that honor-shame culture? How does that affect uh, relationships, and how does it affect how they view themselves within that group that's so important? That's a great question, and I think to answer it, um, maybe we can better understand the roles women and men play in the honor-shame paradigm. Women um, are generally responsible for training children what is shameful, what they should avoid, say, from birth to adolescence. But we observe around adolescence that men begin to take over the responsibility, and women have taught what is shameful, how to avoid it, then men begin to um, enforce and guard honor. And that is why we hear um, brothers are punishing sisters for things sisters did that were wrong, etc. Um, women are the bearers of the honor burden in the Muslim world. And they are the icons of either honor or shame, depending on their behavior. This is a tremendous responsibility that no one gender or one person was ever intended to bear. But one did, and that was Jesus Christ. He did bear that for us. He bore both the honor and the shame. And this is our gospel message to them. I'm fascinated to hear you say that women are the honor bearers. Uh, I was in northern Iraq a couple of years ago, and we met with a pastor, and he was talking about Christian women being attacked. And he made the statement, and I have never forgotten it, our honor is with our women. Mm -hmm. So when you attack our wives or our daughters, mm -hmm. you're attacking our honor. Mm -hmm. That's almost exactly the way you just said it. Great, yes. I would call men the honor guards. They are the honor guards. They are not doing this to be violent. In fact, we think of honor-shame cultures today as violent cultures because the, the majority of media coverage we're seeing are on the extreme examples of purging shame, um, violent honor killings, 
etc. But um, Muslim men are preoccupied with how to avoid shame, and they have ways to manage shame in their culture. The, um, the violent ways are the, the last resorts for them because it is so important to them. So what would be the sort of lower down the scale? If that's the last resort, what's the first option to handle a situation where I have been shamed? The first is to avoid it altogether. <laughs> and um, a great example was told to me by my friend Roland Mueller. He said that um, a, a friend of his was had come into an inheritance and he was consulting with him how to spend it wisely, how to invest it wisely. And there was extensive discussion about uh, purchasing, a, purchasing a business so he could provide special cuts of meat to expatriates in his country and become a specialized butcher, as it were. And after they had designed this great business plan, spent many hours discussing it, later he went out and bought uh, a fruit orchard or maybe an olive grove, I can't remember which, but it, he bought a farm. And my friend was confused. He said, well, we made this business plan. Why would you do that? And he said, his, his Muslim friend's response was, well, if my crops fail, everyone's crops fail. Do you see his thought process there? Everyone would be shamed by no no mistake of their own. If God intervened and our crops failed, everyone would experience that failure. But if my butcher failed, only I would. So he was avoiding shame by buying a farm instead of venturing out with his own butcher business. The other thing I see in that is, again, the group. Everybody would be ashamed at the same time or everyone would be happy at the same time because our crops are all going to be the same as opposed to I'm going to stick out either positively or negatively. I don't want to stick out. Right, right. Constant concern for how to avoid shame, constant concern for how to maintain the honor and integrity of our group. And one of the things you mentioned is the fact that at roughly puberty, the, the training and how to avoid this shame shifts from the mom to the dad. So... And I think particularly of girls. Is that true for girls as well as boys? We do see girls scolding younger girls and scolding little boys about what is shameful. But men take the role, whether they are, well, let me say males take the role. Adolescent boys begin to take the role. They begin to be honor guards themselves at that time. They're being trained by the older men in their lives. They begin to do it themselves. And that, as I mentioned earlier, that that explains to us, and it, it gives us a lot of insight why we hear stories, even here in the United States right now, of brothers who are involved in violent acts toward their sisters to purge shame. And again, as you mentioned, that's the last resort. That, that's not the first step. Right. What role does uh, the veiling of women play in this whole thing? Because I know for another man to see my wife without her veil on would be a huge shame to me. How does that play into this? That's an interesting question, one that I had myself when I first moved into the Muslim world, and one I haven't fully answered, because when I speak to my Muslim friends, they have different opinions about 
their personal appearance. However, they share the opinion that their honor depends partly on them and the way they dress. And if they cover themselves, then they are preserving their honor. They're preserving their modesty. They're also protecting the men from temptation in their life. This is a common a common opinion that I have personally been told by many of my Muslim friends. When I first moved there, I I wanted to be honorable. I wanted to present myself as a modest religious woman, which I am. And I went to the market each day with the traditional robe, but I did not have my hair covered. And I did not yet speak Arabic fluently. And I was yelled at by the the men in the market because my hair was not covered. And I incidentally look like some of the women in my region. And so they assumed that I was a Muslim woman refusing to cover her hair. And one day I marched home, I put the scarf over my head, I went back out and I bought my groceries in the market and no one complained. And Later, my husband told me that a friend of his in the market said, I'm glad that you finally convinced your wife that to be honorable, she needs to wear her scarf. And I had to yield to that mindset to live there myself. And I wore the scarf for the first year I lived there because I wanted to understand. But as my honor grew, and as I was known more because of my husband in that area, then I, I had less trouble with that. Because they attached your honor to his honor? Is, is that a fair way of saying yes, that? it's a true way of saying that. Now, the question is, what about single women who are there? This impacts single women who, who live in that part of the world. But our, our counsel to them and our practice has been think in terms of who are the fathers, uncles, and big brother figures who you can align yourself with, who you can be in public with, who you can go to for protection, shelter, counsel, support, and find those people. And the rules generally are still the same for you after that. So, and you mentioned that men are the honor guards. So a single woman, like a single American gospel worker over there, needs to find an honor guard is basically what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. So as we think about this honor-shame culture and the idea of making every decision by avoiding shame or alleviating shame, where, how does the gospel, how do we come in as Christians and say, we have a solution for your shame, Actually, we don't have a solution. God has a solution for your shame. How do we present that in a way that speaks to their hearts? I think of it this way. As an American, I'm from a guilt-innocence worldview. I don't walk around feeling guilty all the time, just occasionally when I do things wrong. (laughs) If someone approached me with this life-giving message and wanted to address my guilt because it is my worldview, I might not completely understand why they were bringing it up that way. However, um, if someone spoke to me in narrative and story form and shared with me themes of guilt and innocence, it would resonate deeply with me. And I think that the best thing we can do is to learn 
to see the honor-shame themes in the Bible, commit some of those strong honor-shame stories to memory, and be able to orally share them with our friends. This is one of the best gifts we can give them, the Word itself. And many times they will ask, I want you now to read it from the book itself. They've heard it from your mouth. It's gained their attention. They will see things that you do not see because the Bible doesn't need to be contextualized for an honor-shame culture. It was written within an honor-shame culture. Um, I love that Jason Georges says honor, the honor-shame perspective isn't really so much a lens to look through as it is a shovel to remove the eras, the centuries of tradition and things that have built up in our cultures to keep us from seeing it there. If we learn to see it there and learn to use it that way, then we're giving them the word and it never returns void. We make mistakes, but I always remind myself, if I'm giving them the word, it speaks to them in a way I can't. They will see honor-shame principles that I don't even see, and they teach me sometimes. So I'm fascinated to hear which stories. The one that immediately comes to my mind is the woman at the well, and Jesus says, well, you're right that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you're living with someone who's not your husband. That says shame to me. So that one comes immediately to my mind. But what are some other stories in the Bible that, like you say, we should memorize and be able to share with our Muslim friends? And like you also say, there'll be stuff in the story that we have never seen before that immediately jump out to them. That's right. Well, I had an incredible experience one day with a young woman who she had disappeared from my life for a year, and I, I could not find her. And one day I passed her on the street, and she agreed to come into my house for the first time. I had been part of a medical team. We provided cleft palate surgery for her son, and and previously she had had been too ashamed to come into my home. She felt I'd done such a a great deed in her life, she she wouldn't come into my house. But this particular day, she immediately agreed to come into my house, much to my delight. And when she came in, we sat down and started talking, and I noticed that she had changed physically, emotionally, even mentally. And I, I asked her, what has happened to you? And she began to tell me her story that since I had seen her last, her husband had begun to beat her. He had knocked one of her front teeth out. He um, had, had kicked her out of the house. When she went to her, her family's home, they refused to allow her to come back because it brought shame to them to have a daughter rejected by her husband. So her husband told her she could come back and sleep there and see her children if she would become a prostitute and bring those proceeds to him. So that's what she did. And as she told me her story, she looked at me and she said, I have no honor left. I will tell you everything. And she just poured her heart out. Well, of course the story of the woman caught in adultery came to my mind. And I related that to her orally, began to tell her the story. And in the middle of the story, her eyes filled with tears. She looked at me and she said, Stop! I need you to get the Injil right now and read the real story from the book from beginning to end. And I ran and got it. I read it to her. And right there in front of me, it was I got to observe a soul being born into the kingdom of God because she identified with that woman. And the point at which she identified was he did not shame her more. 
but he sent her accusers away because they were they also had shame. She saw that he saw the savior of the world saw the shame in all of them and put them on equal ground. They were equal before the savior. They were equally ashamed. They were equally in need of a savior. And she remained and he restored her. And that same woman today lives outside the walls, the deemed place outside for prostitutes and women like her. She lives in a special community set aside for those rejected people. And she has been sharing the gospel now with those prostitutes. The little boy whose mouth we repaired, whose smile we repaired, he now hears about Jesus from his mother. I do not need to tell him. All because of that story. That's just one great example I got to witness with my own eyes. We could sit here all day and I could listen to those stories. Are there others that jump immediately to your mind? One of my favorite stories is um, the story of a pastor. We would we would have annual gatherings of all the believers in our country, and they would come together by word of mouth, and we would celebrate at Christmas time. And on one occasion, we were hosting this gathering in our home, and this pastor came, and he and his wife were very quiet and humble and understated mighty believers and they lived in the country and he told us that he would take prayer walks along a river to be alone with God because his house was always so full of those in need and so he would go on these prayer walks and he was walking one day and he was meditating in Isaiah 61 he was meditating on this prophecy of the Savior where he promises he says that the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and as he was thinking on this passage he was having as he explained to us he was having sort of a dialogue with the Lord Lord, is this what you will bring my people? I don't see it. I don't see it. They're persecuted. They're hiding. We don't have freedom to worship you. We're longing for you to set the captives free. And he was just thinking about this, and he heard a sound. It sounded like a baby. And he looked around. He got closer to the riverside, and there by the river, he found on a rock a newborn baby lying there without a blanket, without anything left to die. Wow. He grabs the baby and he looks around to see where the mother might be. Perhaps he thought she was ashamed and she was hiding or but he could find no one and he searched the whole area around there and when he determined no one was there, he took the baby home with him. That was the first of 21 babies they rescued. They determined that that was a place where women who had become pregnant um, would come and dispose of their babies in shame. And again, to get rid of their shame. This is yeah. this, Having this baby is a shame. I can't bear to have that, so I'm just going to leave my baby out on a rock. That's right. And so the beauty of the story is that he was meditating and asking the Lord, Lord, set the captives free. And he was thinking of all those adults and those young people in his life that he was trying to reach, having no idea that there was a whole generation of those who were born out of shame, who would not know their parents, but he would find and be able to tell them that they could take their Father in Heaven's name. 
A name is very important in an honor-shame culture. You are known by your father's name. But now, 21, and I believe it's 19 of those were women or girls to grow up to be women who would know their name and their place in their Heavenly Father's kingdom. I think that is one of the most beautiful pictures of, of the gospel of honor redeeming the shame in that part of the world. <laughs> I'm captivated by the idea that we take our Father's name, that we take uh, strength and we represent that name and we draw from that. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Audrey Frank. She is the author of a forthcoming book, Covered Glory, the Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. She is also a former gospel worker in the Muslim world, so she has lived there and uh, knows the culture well, knows how to speak into that culture. Audrey, one of the things that some of our listeners face is they have a, a Muslim coworker or friend or classmate that they want to talk to about Jesus, and they're intimidated, or they feel like, man, I don't know how to bring this up. Talk about how in this honor shame, and, and you talked about just tell stories. Is that a good baseline to start with? It is a good baseline, and I find that I want to backtrack a bit before you begin telling stories to your Muslim friend. Check yourself. Check your behavior. Are you honoring them? Are they alone? Are they in a an office setting? Uh, have they moved away from their culture and family? Um, do they need a group to belong to? Think through their eyes, if you can, with the little that you know about an honor-shame collectivist society, and ask yourself, how can I be an instrument that restores them to belonging, to part of a group, to a place of honor, whether it's to invite them into your home, into your friend group, into your family, to your church, to your small group. Don't be afraid to invite them to church. And as that relationship grows and they begin to feel a sense of belonging, in a way it is like the soil that we would put a seedling in to incubate it so it can grow and nurture. Try to look at their position and understand what they're missing, what their felt need is that they're missing. If they're alone, if they're a new Christian, they're very much in need of quick inclusion in a group, quick belonging. That precedes sometimes the actual face-to-face storytelling gospel deliverance. We have to plant them in the soil first. They've been uprooted. Does that help answer that question? It does help answer it. And I want to ask specifically about immigrants who have come from an honor-shame culture They are now in the United States, a guilt-innocence culture. What parts of the honor-shame culture do they bring with them and still live by, even as they try to adjust into a guilt-innocence culture? My my immediate response is every part. (laughs) Um, Many of them move to the place they move to once they have a little autonomy. Maybe at the beginning, of course, they're in whatever city they've been sent to and whatever shelter or temporary housing. However, when they begin to have a little autonomy and ability to choose for themselves, 
Many of them will choose to find others of their nationality, and where those are, they will they will migrate to those cities or those neighborhoods. So they are still looking to belong to a group, and they don't necessarily find um, cohesion and unity with fellow Muslims from other cultures. As we know, Muslim cultures are diverse. Islam imposes a certain commonality on the ummah or the or the brotherhood the common community of muslims however individually their nations and languages are also very different so we can't assume that because there are many muslims in a certain area that they are they feel that they're part of each other's group sometimes they tend to be actually suspicious um, untrusting of each other so I would say they bring all of those parts of their honor-shame culture, and I have friends who have been here for four years now, and they still tell my husband and I, you are the only friends we have. We go to work, we come back, we see no one. Now, do they actually see no one? No. They work with groups of people. They have others in their lives, but they don't feel part of the group. So in their mind, they're still living through an honor-shame worldview. And they're cut off from what they know. And I'm reminded of, we did an interview with Tom Doyle, the author here, and he talked about inviting Muslims into our homes. One of the stories I will never forget, he, he and they invited a Muslim family over, and uh, in the course of the conversation, the dad said, you know, we've been here for seven years. This is the first time we've been in an American home. And I just was struck by what a huge failure that is on our part to say, you know, come on, come on over. And the other question that I want to ask as we talk with Audrey Frank today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio is help me understand why I don't need to be nervous to strike up that spiritual conversation and to start telling those stories and moving it in that direction. Because I don't have a PhD in Islamic studies. Uh, I don't speak Arabic. I don't read the Quran in Arabic. So I feel intimidated. Like I'm not going to be able to handle this conversation or answer their questions, or they're going to have something that I just don't know. Why should I not be intimidated? That's a good question. (laughs) I think that First of all, when we think with our mind about Muslims, we have to face some certain facts. The Chinese proverb says, the beginning of wisdom is to call a thing by its real name. Terrorism is real. The attack on our nation on 9-11 was real. These things are real. However, when we think with our hearts, alone with the Word of God, in prayer, and talk to the Creator of those people, and of ourselves. We remind ourselves that perfect love casts out fear, and when we begin to pray for them, God's love begins to compel us to do things that don't make sense when we, they don't reconcile themselves with the facts. We're reminded that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. It does not make sense to many of us to love Muslims. Well, it does not make sense to many Muslims to be friends with Christians because they have seen much propaganda that paint us in a terrible light. And 
but the love of Christ compels us. So before we think about our strategies, before we think about our fear or whether we're equipped or whether we're not, we must get alone with God and we must talk to Him about this. One-on-one with Him first. And I guarantee that when we encounter His heart, we will be compelled to reach out regardless of, of the fear. Of course we're afraid. The Bible tells us, I think, 365 times for every day of the year not to be afraid because we indeed are. We're afraid of anything that requires God to make it happen. This is God's work. It's not ours. We don't have the power to convert another soul. We really don't have that power. No matter how much language we know, no matter how many degrees we have, or how much experience we have, only the Holy Spirit has the power to compel a heart toward the Savior. But if we don't tell them, if we don't show them the love of Jesus, how will they know? How will they know? And I will tell you that God's heart is tender toward them. Sometimes loving Muslims is a gift burden. I didn't ask to love them. In fact, as an early college student, my early years planning to go overseas, I wanted to go to the least reached, the hardest places, but not to Muslims. However, when I got alone with God and He showed me what was on His heart, they were there. And that will happen to everyone who brings their fear into his presence and talks with him about it and examines the word and trusts him. I am the Lord and I will go with you. (laughs) It doesn't matter what we know or don't know. We have his love and we have his word. And those are the two most important things. And all of us can tell a story. In fact, we've probably told the story to somebody today already. So being able to sit down and tell a story is not rocket science. That's right. And I wanted to share a verse from 1 Peter. Peter was writing here to persecuted Christians. 1 Peter 4, in, um, he's talking about suffering. In verse 15, he says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We all, as Christians, bear our Father's name. There are Muslims who are longing to know that they have value. They don't even know that the God who created them holds them in such high esteem and wants to to bestow upon them His own name. That unites all of us, and one day we'll worship before the throne with brothers and sisters from the Muslim world, from all these three worldviews we've discussed, and we'll all be bound together by that one name, that honorable name. There's nothing more satisfying, I can imagine, than that. Every tribe and tongue and nation, uh, including Afghanistan and Uh, Libya and Saudi Arabia and Syria and all of those countries that not only do they need the gospel in their country, 
But all of those countries have people living right here in the United States that need the gospel. We can be the bridge builder. We can uh, help issue that. And like you've said, we don't save anybody. God saves them, but we can be a bridge to help that process. Absolutely. Yes, we can and we should be. So I want to encourage you, this new book, Covered Glory, The Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World, we will give you a link when you come to vomradio.net to Audrey's website. You can learn more about this issue of honor and shame. And, and I think it's fascinating. I think we could talk for hours uh, about just how different that is. And like you said, as we tell Bible stories, those stories are written from an honor-shame perspective. They were written by people in an honor-shame culture. So we might share these stories with our Muslim friends and end up learning from them things that we never see. Audrey, thank you for sharing with us today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you for this great book that's going to be such a great resource to help people learn more so that we can share more with Muslims right here in the U.S. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. We've been talking with Audrey Frank. She's the author of a brand new book called Covered Glory, The Face of Honor and Shame in the Muslim World. We'll give you a link to buy the book as well as a link to Audrey's website, audreyfrank.com, when you come and visit us at vomradio.net. Visit our program archives while you're there, and you can hear stories about how God is calling people to himself across geographical boundaries from all different faiths, even in places that are hostile to the Word of God. Again, our website is vomradio.net. While you're there, you can also send me a note. Let me know what you thought of our conversation with Audrey Frank this week. Next week, we're going to visit with a pastor serving in the Middle East and hear about what God is doing among Muslims in that region of the world. Join us next time right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.